about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift his head high. Uh, The second reading for uh, tonight comes from Hebrews, starting at chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with all the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received, uh, it's just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed 
um, us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Hello again. Be good to keep that open. My Bible just closed, which isn't very helpful. Uh, we are starting a new series this evening. We've finished 1 and 2 Samuel, and we're heading into the book of Hebrews, which is quite a unique book in the New Testament because we don't really know who wrote it, and we don't really know who it was written to. Uh, most other books in the New Testament, we know we have all that detail in the first line or the first paragraph of the book. We're not so with this book. Uh, it's named Hebrews because as you have already noticed, there's a lot of quotations from the Old Testament, a lot of references to being a Jew, and so it's most likely a group of Jewish believers uh, in a particular spot who are receiving this word of exhortation, which is what it's called in chapter 13. This is a word of exhortation given to a group of Jewish Christians. Now, despite the fact we don't know who wrote it or who it's being really being sent to, as you read through the book of Hebrews, you get a very clear picture of some of the issues they're facing. And they're, kind of, they're pretty manifold. Uh, there's a whole series of different problems and, and issues uh, amongst this group of Christians. I was trying to think, how can I explain this to you succinctly and simply? Uh, I thought, let's use modern media. Here is a text message from the people of Hebrews. Imagine you get this at 1 a.m. and you wake up at 7 a.m. and you read it. It's from your friend who you were asking, uh, yeah, I haven't seen you at church in a little bit, man. What's happening? Hey, man. That's how my messages start. Yeah. I haven't been around church in a while. I'm not really sure why. In some ways, I've just fallen out of the habit of it. In other ways, I guess I'm just a bit tired in my faith, a bit weary. There's also a fair bit of pressure around at the moment, more than there used to be, which makes me kind of question the worth of it all. And I can do a lot of what Jesus calls us to without faith anyway. A lot of modern society has Christian social aims. Not sure what you make of all that. This group of Christians were facing a whole series of different things. Some of them were just bone-weary tired of being Christian. Some were suffering quite severe persecution. Some were wondering whether they should just head back to their Jewish roots and get rid of this whole Jesus thing, because really, do they need faith in Jesus to get along in the world at all? And some of them had just forgotten to keep meeting together as God's people. I wonder what you, what you think when you read that, or how you think you'd respond to a friend who sent that sort of message to you. Maybe you're in church this evening reading that and thinking, that's around about how I feel about my faith around about now. Just tired, pressured, and a little wondering the worth of it. There's lots of ways to address a message like this, I think. And a lot of the ways we try and do that is by pragmatic responses of, well, maybe if church is more exciting, then you'll feel it a bit more. Or maybe just try something a bit different. Maybe there's some techniques on how to reignite your faith. We could get a book on that or a podcast. Or maybe we can just find a new way of doing things. Or maybe you can just leave it all behind. But the book of Hebrews starts in a very different place in answer to a group of people experiencing this. 
It starts and continues by throwing at us a daring, massive, beautiful, just spectacular vision of who Jesus is. Because the problem that the writer really thinks is at the heart of the issue for this group of Christians is this. They're lamb-hugging visions of who Jesus actually is. There's no verse in Scripture that says that Jesus actually hugged a lamb, by the way, or that he was white. So there's lots of problems with this photograph, I was going to say, painting. Um, um, But basically the problem behind a lot of the problems being experienced is that their vision of who Jesus is is just so paper thin and so insignificant and so paling in comparison to the the life that they're living and the pressures that they're under. And what he goes after straight away and through the rest of the letter is pressing on them a bigger vision of who Jesus is. Because that is the answer to bone weariness, to heaps of pressure, and to bad habits. So let's take that journey through Hebrews 1 this evening. Think, see how he throws at us at the beginning, that big vision of Jesus. I just have four things for you this evening. Three are about Jesus, and one is about you. The first thing about Jesus we get here, as he's called the Son in this passage, is that in Jesus is the final word of God. In Jesus is the final word of God. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. That's how we know the Jews in this whole letter, right? Because ancestors and the prophets, this is the Jewish world we're talking about, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoken to us by his Son. Right, See the contrast going back to the Jewish frame of understanding things. You've got Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Job and uh, Zechariah and Abraham and Isaac and this whole web of different stories of God speaking through different people in different times, different places, some of them really strange through across thousands of years, the rich, beautiful tapestry of the way God spoke through the old covenant on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is one word for the final time, for the last days. It's not a rich tapestry of different things, but it is one thing. God has spoken in these last days by His Son. Now, this is a really interesting statement straight away. And what He doesn't mean is that the Old Testament has stopped speaking as a body of knowledge because He goes on in the rest of the chapter, to say how God is speaking through the Old Covenant. But he's saying that in the person of the Son, God has spoken in some unique and special way that is the culmination of the way that God speaks at every other time and in every other place and in every other way. It is a final and complete word in a way that every other word wasn't. Why? Why do we get this about the Son, about Jesus? Well, in verse 3, I think we get the real nub of it. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact 
representation of his being. The son is not just a human. The son is the the radiance, the outward glow, the visible likeness of the glory of God. And it's not a lesser glory, kind of stages down from the real glory, but he is the exact representation of God's full divine being. In the person of Jesus is nothing more and nothing less than the complete deity of God. That word uh, representation uh, is kind of like the word you'd use when you were sealing a a letter. You'd put hot wax on the letter and you'd get uh, your little metal emblem and press into the wax. And you would get an exact representation of your metal likeness in the waxy substance. So in the sun we have the exact likeness, the fullness of deity. Jesus is God's final word because he isn't just a messenger from God, a prophet or an angel, as we'll see later, but he is God. Everything he is is God. Everything he says is God. God come among us. It's like that time when you met someone on Facebook and you've been messaging them and then you meet them in person and realize you had all their emojis wrong. Because who they are in the present, in their fullness, is bigger and more spectacular than everything they were without it. Jesus is God's final word because he is God in his fullness among us. God has revealed himself in the person of his son in a way he cannot reveal himself through any prophet, through anything in the old covenant. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. It's not just that the Son is the perfect representation of who God is. It's that everything also happens through the Son. Do you see that through this text? It says that God appointed him heir of all things in verse 2. That's what sons are, right? Sons are heirs. To them belong the shares and the bank account and the wheat fields and what, the debt, whatever, you know. Whatever is in the inheritance belongs to the first male heir, right? And the, this son, who is the eternal son of the father, the exact representation of the father's being, to him belongs everything. God has made him heir of everything. Not only has God made him heir of everything, but he has used him to make things through whom also God made the universe. See, everything happens through the Son. Everything belongs to him. Everything is made through him. And then everything is sustained through him, verse 3, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Not only is it created and sustained, but purified by him. After he had provided purification For sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Everything that happens in the created order happens through the Son. The Father uses the Son to make all of his plans happen. And so the Son is the one who gives you your next breath, who makes sure your house doesn't fall down, who stops the continental plates from pulling our planet apart, who keeps the, sun, the, the earth in orbit around the sun, who makes your life coherent and whole. 
everything happens through the Son. Creation, redemption, purification. That word purification has overtones of lambs being slaughtered in temples. Of cosmic air purification. The Son as heir and creator is the one who cleans up his own inheritance, purifying it through his death on the cross. Can you see how at the very beginning of this letter, you are just being thrown Jesus from every angle, right? Every single angle. And what's supposed to be happening right now is you're supposed to start feeling how waxy and paper thin your vision of Jesus really feels. Because how can our picture of Jesus hold up to this magnificent portrait of the fullness of his cosmic glory and power and status. He is right now at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, having completed all of the Father's purposes. We are supposed to be feeling a little bit pressed by this. But the writer's not done. The third thing he wants to show you, and this is a bit strange for us, let's own it. He really, really wants his hearers to know that this, all of this makes Jesus very, very superior to angels. Now, I don't know what you think about angels. Uh, the writer doesn't deny that angels exist or that they have a place in God's purposes. But for some reason, these Jewish Christians are very into angels. And there's a reason for that. Uh, there's a verse in Deuteronomy that points to, obliquely, the, the idea that angels are the ones who gave the, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments to Moses, right? They're the ones who actually brought the, new co- the old covenant to God's people. And they show up at important times in God's history, and they come between people and God. So they are these powerful messengers in the story of God who, when people see them, feel the full weight of divine glory often in their presence and start to wet their pants often. That's kind of what appears to happen. But what the writer wants his readers to understand is that despite the apparent glory of angels, they are nothing compared to the Son. And then he goes to these good Old Testament Christians and throws Scripture at them from every angle to show them how in the Old Testament it was always about a Son who'd have an eternal kingdom who would also be eternal himself and that angels are just his servants. So he quotes uh, straight away Psalm 2, the great psalm about the Messiah that says, You are my son, today I have become your father. Then over to 2 Samuel 7, that other great text where David is promised a son who will reign forever. And what distinguishes him is what? I will be his father and he will be my son. See how there's the beginnings of the eternalness of Jesus, of his status before a father, even in the Old Testament, promised in shadows. Of course, to angels in the Psalms, they're told to worship the Messiah. They're described as servants of the Most High God. But of the Son, in verse 8 and 9, it's it's spoken that he will have an everlasting kingdom that he'll be set above his companions and in verse 10 unlike the creation that will wear out like a garment he will remain for years and years and years 
a son before a father with an eternal kingdom and an eternal essence all back there in the scriptures promising the Messiah. And to wrap it up, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are servants of God's purpose, but the Son is the exact radiance of His glory. And He is the one through whom all of God's purposes are fulfilled, and He is the heir of all creation, vastly superior to angels. Now, you might be thinking, that's very helpful, but I don't really care about angels. But of course, if you walked into a bookstore... Uh, and you counted the number of titles that are about angels in the spirituality section and the number of books that are about Jesus, you'd learn something different. Angels are a very big thing, particularly in New Age theology and spirituality. Uh, Someone I love really dearly is very deep in the New Age, and whenever I lend them a piece of luggage, it always comes back with an angel card in it. You know, that's kind of a big thing. Now, here's here's someone who is very into angels, Doreen Virtue. Uh, She's actually known, or was known, as the queen of the angels. Uh, If you ever come across uh, what might be called an angel card deck, these kind of things, uh, quite often she's written them. And her her story is quite simple. She grew up with a sense that there was a a high God far away, and she didn't really know how to access him. But heard about angels, how they became between us and God, and, and thought, well, they're really significant and powerful. And she started talking to them, communing with them, and started leading others to do the same thing. And so her whole life got swept up into the, the, these angels and their power and their presence and the guidance they give us. A couple of years ago, Doreen became a Christian. And it's, it's really interesting to hear the journey that she went on between being queen of the angels and becoming a follower of Jesus. Uh, she talks in a book she wrote that you can get to, for free online in a PDF if you feel like it later. I think The Joy of Jesus is what it's called. She said, Before, I began to think of Jesus in her early days as an ascended master. A new age term, which means a great teacher, healer, or mystic who once walked the earth and is now helping humanity from heaven. That's a very common new age belief. Jesus is one spiritual being among many. But then when she's sitting in an Anglican church like this one day, she has this vision of Jesus. And she says, in my experience, in my vision of Jesus, that she had this encounter with him, it became clear that Jesus was more than an angel. He was the Son of God, part of the Holy Trinity. Remember that prior to this experience, I'd revered Jesus as an ascended master. Yet in that moment of seeing him, I knew that Jesus is Lord. And I had the realization that I could not no longer be in the New Age world. I've been trying to walk in both worlds, and seeing Jesus instantly changed this. It's a really fascinating moment of someone who spent their whole life around angels, and then realizing that they'd got Jesus so many pegs too low. She had him pegged as ascended master, one among equals. When she converted, she realized that he was not one among equals, but was the eternal son. And that everything else was subordinate to him. This has led to a massive change in her life, and she's now quite hated in New Age circles for the things she's now said uh, about lots of New Age spirituality and theology. Very interesting story. Go read more about her. She's a really interesting person. 
But I haven't been able to shake in my head this week that phrase, ascended master. Because I just have an inkling of a feeling that when we read Hebrews chapter 1 and when we hear the big, beautiful vision of who Jesus is, and then we look at the Jesus in our lives, in our hearts, that quite often our Jesus is an ascended master rather than the eternal son. That really he becomes a useful spiritual person amongst other spiritual lights and people and objectives in our lives. And really he ends up a few pegs lower than what he really should be. And despite the fact that it may not be angels we're in trouble, uh, we're in danger of worshipping instead, that we are always in danger of keeping our Jesus pegs lower than he really is. And I think this is where we get to the nub of where this writer really wants us at this part of his writing. Because on the back of this big vision of Jesus and proving his superiority to angels, he has a very stern warning. And this is the thing for you. Because according to the writer, in the end of the day, if Jesus is who he says he is, then you are either listening to him or you're drifting away. Chapter 2 verse 1 says this. There's a therefore there. Therefore, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. If Jesus is the cosmic eternal Son, the radiance and glory of the Father, the one through whom all things happen, then we have to go back and pay more careful attention to all we know about Him in the Gospel and throughout the Old Covenant. Every detail, every piece of information carefully detailed, focused, focused and understood. Because if we're not listening according to the writer, then we're drifting. The word is literally for something that goes slowly down the river, like a leaf or a, a branch or a part of a tree, slowly drifting away. Because the reality is for faith for most of us does not combust suddenly and spectacularly, but slowly, silently. We just fade on out into the distance. And it happens through what the Hebrew writers already described, through Jesus' status just getting a little bit lower. It's like we walk into life with a vision of who Jesus is from our conversion, from our teenage years, from some great books we read, from a great past we once knew, and we walk out into life with a great vision of Jesus, and and slowly life gets more complicated, the world gets more complicated, uh, and our vision of Jesus just doesn't seem to fit up against life, and he gets smaller and smaller. He becomes a useful guide, but not the eternal son, and slowly we drift off into the distance. The writer says, hey, if you guys love angels, then you know that if you disobeyed the covenant from angels, you ended up punished. And if the eternal son is here, who's greater than angels, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? A salvation announced by God at Jesus' baptism 
testified by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. See how he ratchets it up and says there is a lot on the line in the way you listen to the Son, in the way you hear the final word of God or not. This reminded me of um, a story I heard about my niece recently who has found a very effective way of waking up her mother in the morning. She wakes up 5 a.m., wants food, walks out the door of her bedroom, walks into her mother's room, climbs onto her mother's bed, climbs onto her mother, climbs up her mother, gets eerily close to her face, grabs her eyelids, pulls them, and yells, eyes open, mummy, eyes open. Again and again and again until she gets food. Very effective in case you were wanting to do that to someone tomorrow morning. You can grab someone by the eyelids. Very effective. But that, that, that's what's happening at this moment. There's a lot to come about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And, and he starts by put, making Jesus really big, really superior, and says, if your eyes aren't open to what's about to be said, to the fullness of who Jesus is, if you're not leaning on in and listening, then you will drift away. He's trying to ready us to drink the fullness of who Jesus is, to check our paperweight Jesus at the door of the, this letter, that we might walk through and see him with our eyes open, hearing more clearly the fullness of his glory. Because that, in the end, is the trick. Paying more careful attention again to what you have already heard. That's what, that was the trick in Doreen's life, too. The vision was the end point of her journey. Do you know what the starting point of her journey was? She decided to make some cards about Jesus. She called it loving words from Jesus. And she only could remember a few things, um, you know, ask, seek, not find, uh, things about mercy, things about love, and she thought, I should get some more material. And so she read the Gospels end to end for the first time in her entire life. And she said, yet while I was reading the Gospels, I encountered Jesus' assertive side, as well as his warm and cuddly side. He taught strong guidelines and boundaries that struck a chord within me. For example, Jesus said that if we're embarrassed to talk about him publicly, then he won't acknowledge us either. It's a good thing to put on a card, don't you think? And, and what happened is she had this vision of Jesus from tidbits and things and ascended master. And, and then she opened the Gospels and, and looked again and was like, wow, Jesus is not like that at all. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's more powerful. He's more holy. He's more mighty. And Jesus, the ascended master, faded into the distance of what she heard and then began to see. You see, friends, you need to pick up your picture of Jesus again and question whether it has actually grown, whether it actually checks up against who he is. I don't know what it's going to take for you in the Hebrew series to do that sort of work. Maybe it's just getting to church every week and seeing the fullness of Jesus in this letter. Maybe it's about texting someone after every sermon. Maybe it's about meeting up with someone. Maybe it's about journaling. I don't know what it is, but what will make you... Pay the most careful attention 
to the Jesus of the Gospel on display in the book of Hebrews. Because God the Father has spoken powerfully and finally in the person of His Son, the Eternal Son, the heir of all reality. And you're either listening or drifting. Your Jesus is growing bigger or he's growing smaller. But as we head on out into this book, through this series, it is very important to remember that we aren't very good at listening to Jesus. And really, there is only one person who has always listened to God the Father who has always known how to obey every word he's received. And he is the eternal son who came down from heaven, pressed onto human flesh, the fullness of divinity, to purify your ears and the sin of your heart on the cross, that you might hear your father's voice. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. When you start to Carefully attend to the one who died so you could listen. That your Jesus will start to grow big. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this this word from the book of Hebrews as it starts. This picture of Jesus that presses up against us. We pray that your spirit would take that picture and press it onto our hearts that you would take the caricatures, the half-visions, the half-thoughts, the paper-thin, waxy version of of the, the beautiful Lord Jesus we have, and that you would make shine in our hearts His glory and radiance, that our hearts would know the purification of our own sin, and that we would pay the most careful attention to the glory of the gospel. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.